0: I'm at a town on official Food 52 business this week, so we are going to rerun one of my favorite episodes. It's the one where I get to talk to cookbook author Nigella Lawson. We'll hear about her thoughts on cooking as necessity over therapy, the time she spent wrestling with being quote-unquote just a food writer early in her career, and why, when it comes to having people over for dinner, she thinks the smaller the table, the better. Here's the show, and we'll see you back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. You don't always feel like cooking
1: you know I, I do talk about the joyfulness of cooking and the pleasure I take in it but that doesn't mean to say that I believe it, it is always pleasurable and it is always joyful in the same way as they always say about you know what the difference between a writer and someone who isn't a writer is that a writer doesn't wait for inspiration to write and the same way is that you don't wait for inspiration to cook you cook because you need to get supper on the table and that act of necessity frees you from the burden of
0: having to enjoy it, and then actually, you do enjoy it. Welcome to Burnt Toasts, a podcast from Food52 for people who never stop wondering about food. I'm Kenzie Wilbur.
1: It's a quiet few minutes where you can stir pans, move things around a bit, gaze at the beauty of the raw ingredients.
0: Nigella Lawson is a domestic goddess. Though she'll tell you it was ironic, it was the title of her second book, and it stuck with her. But many more best-selling books and plenty of episodes of cooking shows later, she still won't pretend that cooking is some ethereal, warm and fuzzy joy every single time we do it. She takes a more human approach, one that's rightfully earned her all of those readers and cooking show loyalists. She will, however, tell you not to ask what her desert island food is.
1: I don't get sick of being asked things, but I there are certain questions I find very difficult. And they're the sort of questions that I suppose... Uh, come from that sort of listicle journalism. What is your favourite restaurant? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, who would you like to have for dinner? Mm-hmm. Um, who do you want to cook for? You know, all that sort of thing. And I, I find it very difficult because I don't really think in terms of our sort of hierarchy. I mean, I feel like that certain moods I can like. want one restaurant, other moods I might want something else. I don't have a favourite food stuff and. I find it difficult and I always take every question seriously so if someone says if you had to live off one foodstuff for the rest of your life what would you choose uh, you know and it's meant to be quick fire I ponder deeply yes. and then I think oh it's quite difficult because any foodstuff would become intensely boring if that's all you ate and then I feel like I have subsidiary questions uh, what am I allowed to used to cook this yes. one food stuff so I'm afraid <laughs> to say I just don't think I've got the right mentality for those sorts of questions mm-hmm. so it's meant to be fun and I think I, I, I then probably bore people
0: Yeah, I'm uh, crossing off all kinds of questions on my notes right <laughs> um, let's talk about your book a little bit mm-hmm. um, so we talk about cooking as it relates to comfort and cooking as therapy and slowing down in the kitchen a lot but what you write in your intro is that it's more about playfulness and necessity for you. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy? Yes I mean what I think is this is that
1: it's about playfulness and also engagement with life. Yes there are therapeutic elements but I don't think that that is uppermost for me in the same way as I find food comforting but I don't eat for emotional ballast. I think for me it's about a form of existence that is less harried than everyday life, being in the kitchen mm-hmm. and cooking. But of course linked to that is a necessity to uh, cook recipes or often they're not even recipes That are simple. And when I started off doing this a long, long time ago, but still relatively late on in my working life, um, I felt that cooking had been so taken over by professional chefs, restaurant chefs, that everyone had a false idea of what cooking is, was, and can be. And of course, cooking can be very complicated, but I mean, obviously, at Foo 52, it's always. About the home cook, I Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think home cooking is very varied because home cooks are varied. But nevertheless, it's not performance art cooking. and And the idea is not to have as many steps as possible. So that sort of cooking is stressful. But in the sense of cooking being about being engaged with life is that... I, maybe it's because I was a journalist for so long so that I existed very much in my head. When I'm cooking, I, I feel very connected to the world in a simple way, you know, and that cutting um, an onion or peeling a potato, not that I do that a great deal. Um, mostly I use recipes when I don't even have to peel a potato. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I do think that because of that, there is a way in which one is just sort of there in the kitchen and so much of life, modern life, and maybe it was always thus, but we always think each generation thinks its problems are singular, that normally one's always sort of thinking, what, am I got to, what have I got to do next and what am I meant to be doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's true too of the sort of restaurant-type recipes when you can't just enjoy stirring a pot because you're thinking do I need a sugar thermometer for this? And what am I meant to be doing next? And have I ruined it? Yes. So that so for me, it, it is just about the playfulness of cooking is because if what you cook is essentially simple, then and you get used to the rhythms of the kitchen, then really you can introduce different spices or go through your fridge and use up what you've got and just see what happens and I find that like such a wonderful way of unwinding and I understand that for a lot of people that's not really understandable but I do think mainly it isn't because the sort of cooking that's undertaken is too stressful Mm -hmm. but but of course in a way with this belief comes its opposite which is that as I say cooking has to be hinged upon necessity otherwise it's it's a hobby and it's it's meaningless yeah, it um, loses its purpose. and it loses its purpose and it becomes as I say it becomes a hobby or um an Instagram feed much as I like Instagram yeah. so you don't always feel like cooking you know I do talk about the joyfulness of cooking and the pleasure I take in it but that doesn't mean to say uh that I believe it it is always pleasurable and it is always joyful in the same way as they always say about you know what the difference between a writer and someone who isn't a writer is that a writer doesn't wait for inspiration to write. Yes. And the same way is that you don't wait for inspiration to cook. You cook because you need to get supper on the table. And that act of necessity frees you from the burden of having to enjoy it. And then actually you do enjoy it. Yeah. You just get supper on the table. It's a quiet few minutes where you can stir pans, move things around a bit, you know gaze gaze at the beauty of the raw ingredients <laughs>
0: sure Yeah, I, I think that that view of of needing cooking to be hinged on necessity is refreshing. Because in our world, people talk about living to eat rather than eating to live sometimes. And the opposite is very often true. Um, you also talk about hating cooks apologizing in the kitchen too much. Um,
1: what, for saying this isn't going to work? And- yeah,
0: just mi- mindless apologies when you're when you're in the kitchen and when you're cooking. And I was curious about that a little bit um, because I think it's a very common thing to have a cook apologize for a dish.
1: No, 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 no. And I say that because I am a culprit. And so I allow myself to apologize once only because I think otherwise it's embarrassing for everyone eating because what are they meant to say? No, no, in re- you know, weekly. Oh, no, it does taste nice. Or they feel embarrassed because they hadn't noticed it was wrong. So I allow myself to say something once, mm-hmm. but I think that's more. Why I think it's important is because because um, if you have people over for supper, to, get, to carry on saying, "Oh, this is wrong," and I'm sorry, and that didn't turn out. Uh, that didn't turn out right, it actually then becomes all about you, you, you. Right. Uh, it's all about my cooking. It's not about whether you're having a good time. And I think that's the wrong way around. But, you know, we all are a bit like that in life. And If you ever go to the house of someone who's a gardener and you see the garden, they always say you should have seen it last month. <laughs> so I suppose it's 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 not particular to cooks, but we all do it. And I think it is, it's just about training yourself not to. I, I think if it is... I can cope with that if I think it's um, better manners not to burden my guests with my every insecurity.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good rule. One time, one time only. And no times is probably best. I don't know. I mean, I think we are, you know, (laughs) one's allowed to be human. (laughs) Yes. Um, You also don't entertain with a capital E, you say. Mm, I don't. What does having people over and feeding them mean to you? Well, generally, I
1: don't like to plan it too much ahead because... My personality type is such that if I plan something, I begin to dread it. So sometimes yes. I like to think, oh, "Well, do you know what? It'd be really nice to see so and so." And then I start thinking, "Oh, they'll get on, or let's—I'll I'll just go for it." And uh, so I tend to do—you know—I don't know—I don't know what to call them. I have people for supper; they're not dinner parties. Yeah. I
0: was that an evolution though? No, like I've getting, always been like yeah. that
1: actually. I've always been like that. I mean, I might have gone through a pretentious dinner party stage as, <laughs> as a student, but <laughs>
0: with fine I, silver. And... Well, no, I don't think with fine
1: silver, but I might have had place names and that sort of thing when mm-hmm. I was about 18. But luckily, that probably by the time I was 19, I was over <laughs> it. Um, I but I just you know, I don't have starters, I tend to put things out with drinks because I hate the idea that you've just sat down. And then you've got to clear the table, Mm -hmm. wash up the flatware, and start again. And that seems to be very unrelaxing. Plus, I think people work much longer hours than they used to, so you tend to start eating later than you'd like. Always, without fail. So I don't really... And the idea of having three courses, you know... So I start thinking, when am I going to get to bed? And that makes me sound like a very ungenerous host. I like having people over, but I also like having food that doesn't interrupt conversation too much. Um, my mother always used to say, if you, if you would say something like, you know, can you pass the potatoes? And she'd say, don't ask, Stretch. Um, in this rather fierce way, because she thought that the the cardinal sin was to interrupt someone's conversation, and she would always say as well is that don't put flowers on a table because you should never get um, into someone's eye line. People have to mm-hmm. look to, look at each other to talk. So I think that conversation and having a good time and laughing and just feeling that you're surrounded by people that you want to be with is the most important thing about having people for supper. And I am greedy, and I don't like eating food that um, is less than pleasurable. But nevertheless, I think it would be a bad uh, dinner party, if you want to call it that, if the best thing about it were the food.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you still stretch instead of pass?
1: It depends. I think that I—I'm afraid to say I'm probably so do the worst thing ever, which is stretch out a fork and dig into a plate um, and also I, I, t- I like everyone to be squeezed in a small space so for example you know we're sitting at a table now that's not enormous but I would be very happy to put 12 people around this table 12
0: around this and table and
1: squeeze all the food very close together so really there's no room that. for passing or scarcely scree- stretching so I, I, I think that I don't like I hate things actually becoming as I say like a dinner party or mm-hmm. formal mm-hmm. and If I, you know, I have been known many times to be in pajamas and no makeup when people come for supper. And then I feel it's only polite to warn people because I think then people who've made a great effort will feel foolish.
0: (laughs) I like the 12 people around this dinner, this table. Just a note to those who can't see the table inside our studio. On a busy day, we could (laughs) seat four, maybe four more if you strip away the mics and give up the dream of affording people elbow room. All of you with small apartments, consider this freedom to squeeze your guests around a tiny table. When you were talking about um, thinking about when you might get to bed, if you have Mm. something too overly planned at a dinner party, it was making me think of a conversation that we had in the office not long ago where people were wondering what your strategies are to basically get guests out the door if they're lingering too long. I might say, I'm going to leave you there now.
1: I'm (laughs) going to bed. Um, But... But, you know, I'd say another way of making things quite informal is like cooking things ahead. And it's quite strange because I so don't like planning, but I do need a certain amount of structure. I don't want to do everything at the last minute. Mm -hmm. I like to to know it's there. I feel very consoled in life generally, knowing there's a lot of food around. I don't know whether it's because, you know, my uh, several generations ago, I I came from refugee stock. So that unless there's a lot of food around, I I begin to to become uneasy i don't know what it is
0: that reminds me of one of my favorite episodes of nigella bites is the legacy food episode uh, yeah. where you talk about the recipes that you got from your mother and grandmother <laughs> The way I
1: cook is very influenced by the way my mother cooked before me. Indeed, most of what I feel about food comes from my family. But I think this makes sense for all of us because food can never be just fuel. It really is our most personal history and there are certain dishes which I remember from my childhood
0: which I want my children in turn to remember eating and be able to cook. I'm curious about the ones that you want to pass on to your children. Well,
1: I suppose because my mother died young, it's very important to me that they can do her food and they can cook her food, and that matters to me. Um, I I think what I I feel about what I pass on is is not so much recipes but a way of cooking. I I like the fact that I think they will never, ever uh, cook pasta without reserving some of the pasta water to help make the sauce, and that's important to me. And I know that um, they will... Use, they will de- deglaze nearly everything with vermouth. Um, so, so I feel it's those little things, and I think it's those small actions that make you smile when you're in the kitchen. That you're that you're behaving in a way that reminds you of someone who's no longer there, mm-hmm. rather than actually cooking a big. Recipe that may be theirs, my mother actually didn 't cook from recipes and um and I suppose that 's another legacy I would like to leave my children that they just cook mm-hmm. and it's a sense it's it's um, sounds inconsistent you know since I write recipes to want them to cook without them, but I said that to all my readers you know you know to that in a way i I think a recipe has to become the reader's, which means he or she. And cook it a certain amount of times and then think, and you know what, I'd like it better with dill, not cilantro. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd prefer to use uh, lamb, not beef. I-, I feel that because we live in a culture of the expert, and I think the two areas in which it's always surprises me is that people look to the expert in cooking and in child rearing and and in both cases if you needed experts you know human beings would have fallen out of the evolutionary loop a long time ago and I f- I feel that perhaps sometimes people want to have so many notches as it were on their mm. on their recipe list I've done this one I've done this one I've done this one whereas sometimes it's much better just to cook one several times and then you think, oh yeah, I know that recipe now. It's sort of in my bloodstream. I can just cook it and I know when I can deviate and I know when I want to stick to it.
0: You've written nine books. You've been on a million episodes of cooking shows and written so many articles. And in addition to wanting your readers to start to cook and make your recipes their own, who, who, who are you speaking to and, and what are you really trying to say to them? I don't know. Actually, I haven't done
1: millions of cooking shows. I'm very strict about limiting the amount I do, um, because I I need to feel everything. You know, everything else for my voice. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I'm not scripted when I do a program, and it has to be mine. And if I did as many, as, you know, it, it would be possible to do, then really it would just be like scrabbling about for a recipe. I don't know. It's difficult. It's not only really a message. It's a conversation about life. What's what I think started it was, and this wasn't conscious, um, was that both my mother and one of my sisters, who was sixteen months younger than me, died young, and I think I felt a need to memorialise their food, and I and also to continue the conversation with them because. When I spoke to my sister, I'm afraid, and I still do it, you know, now with my surviving sister, that we only ever say to each other, "What are you cooking tonight?" or "What did you eat for lunch?" Mm-hmm. What are, what are, you know, and that's all we ever did. Mm-hmm. So it was a way of continuing that conversation. And I actually I enjoy having the conversation with a with other people, but but in a way, I think I don't hold a view of anyone particular in my head when I'm writing. When I started off on television, I did imagine I was talking to my sister and then when I first and I also imagined as well sometimes when I was writing a recipe that I have a very good friend who always felt quite frightened of the kitchen and felt she couldn't cook and I and I wanted to write in a way that got her into the kitchen before she really noticed she was there. Mm-hmm. But I suppose I I want to say about how I suppose it to me it's really about talking about life and talking about food and how they're two uh more than interrelated, but how they they really are the same. And it's not just the obvious, which is, you know, food is social history and we need food to sustain us. But I also do think, and I, I think I perhaps say this too often, but I it can't be overstated that what's true in the kitchen is true out of the kitchen, which is that you need a certain amount of structure, but you need to know when to go with the flow and be spontaneous. And that you have to strive for balance. And it, and also that, you know, another thing people often ask me is like, what, what in, in interviews, you know, have you, can you think of any terrible mistake you've made? And I feel like, well, when you cook, as in for the rest of life, it's not really about whether you make mistakes or not. You have to make mistakes. It's how you rectify them or how you move on from them, even if you can't rectify them. Mm -hmm. So for me, really, it's when I talk about food, it's because I'm intensely obsessed with food and it interests me enduringly. But I also feel it's a way of talking about life. Mm
0: -hmm. To me, it reads as a a few things. One, a diary of the way that you're cooking or eating at a certain time period, Mm. much like Simply Nigella does. Um, And it's also... It's not an anthem because it's a lot more demure than that. Um, but it's a you can do this. It is,
1: but it is, an, but I also worry sometimes about it being uh, idealized and glorified. Because yes, as I say, cooking gives me a lot of pleasure, but it can't always to make. I think then people start feeling that they're failing somewhat yes. if they feel you know crotchety and bad tempered about it, because that is also you know, yes. part of life. And I think. Actually, I started as well because I enjoy language, and I always think that um, writing and cooking are analogous in the same way that reading and eating are. And when I read a novel and I enjoy it, I just feel like oh, I just love the taste of these sentences. And and in, in, it's a sort of odd form of synesthesia I have that, that that fuses the the literary with the greedy.
0: Sure, the glorification is a great point, though. I feel like. In a way, it's a beautiful thing to say, take my recipe and make it yours, put the dill in it and not the cilantro. But to some cooks, um, and definitely some cooks who you speak to, that could be really horrifying. I don't want to switch up the herb. I don't know. Yes. Um, you and know. I
1: think you're right. And I think that I don't think someone's failed if they follow a recipe to the letter. If you really love the way it is, cook it like that. And, and that, that's what I do. But on the other hand, remember that it isn't a crisis. If you've um, op- you've opened the fridge and you've found you've run out of a particular herb, mm-hmm. so I suppose it's really much more about sort of managing the emotional fallout. Mm-hmm. But certainly, in a, I, I'm when I when I write, I feel I'm trying to explain why I'm, I'm using certain ingredients, and I w- might offer an alternative. And when I do television, I try and explain why I'm using certain ingredients but my director and I always work with the same director, my director says, Nige stop. We want to know what you're doing, stop it. You're not you can't keep going on and on. I don't want to hear what I could do on another day. I wanna know what you're doing now. So in that so so it does change yes. a bit.
0: Yes. What was the moment that you knew you wanted to take your journalism in the direction of food?
1: Do you know I never did. I mean I never felt that and I think I was Surprised, and I know that when I didn't, I did my first book. As I say, I think partly, although it, later I realised in you know, a sort of sort of post hoc rationalisation, oh yes, it was because of you know, for my mother Vanessa, my sister Thomasina, who are uh, also uh, who I dedicated the book to, um, or their memory. Uh, it's it started because my late first husband always used to say you're so confident in your views about you know what what spice goes with what m- bit of meat or how that should be you know cooked and he said and you think everyone is feels like that and they't do and i was like, well it's, it's just my views and i now got rather strong views but that's i had no desire to write about it but then i did and i remember when people said oh you know congratulations on your book and i used to do say the awful phrase, "Oh, it's just a food book," because I felt, you know, I was
0: embarrassed that I'd written a food book, um, and I'm not now. Do you think some of that still exists today in, in other other writers' perceptions of their own work, or in our industry? I don't know. I don't feel part of an industry. Um,
1: I think I think no. I think if anything, it the pendulum has rather swung a lot the other way and um it always you know in a sense that you know people always want to feel that there is a philosophy behind a book and sometimes you just feel like saying you know it's a recipe i like eating it um so uh, i th- but i did feel like that and i think it's because when i was younger i had literary aspirations but funnily enough when i when i after i wrote how to eat cheers. Not a kind of, not a regular cookbook by any means. I thought actually no, I I, I really don't have literary aspirations. I found my voice,
0: mm-hmm. and this
1: is where I feel comfortable. But nevertheless, I I didn't know that I would carry on doing it, and I do it, I suppose purely selfishly because I enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm.
0: There, I mean, obviously your cooking is shaped by a lot of people, family. Are there any voices in the food world or otherwise that shaped your writing voice or your literary voice? Mm, I don't know. I, I think actually, my voice
1: is shaped partly by my education. This is, which is that I, at university, I did languages, and I was very taken various languages. But one of the languages I loved was German. Which always people always. Say German is an ugly language, and I get very cross. It's a very, very beautiful language, but but um, I love the way when you write in German, you can make up your own words. You can, and you have compound nouns, and it's a, a deep joy. And I'm afraid my English style it does that. So sometimes people say, um, "I don't understand that word." I doesn't either, and I say, "I made it up." And also, I have to, I have to 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 control myself because I have a very Germanic use of commas, which is commas and subclauses everywhere. Yes. Um, and I use nouns as adjectives in the way that Germans do.
0: I need to say that your making up of words is by far and away, I think, Food52's favorite thing about you. I think I can speak for the whole company, right? <laughs> We're also loud supporters of her whimsical phrases full of words technically found in the dictionary but otherwise probably never used to describe food. Phrases like gravy juices and gloriously Florentined. She describes a bottle of Frangelico as a sort of monkish derivation and a chocolate cake as a unit of celebration. Do you actually wear a silk robe and dip into your freezer in the middle of the night?
1: Oh, not the freezer, the fridge.
0: The fridge. Um... I
1: probably don't wear a silk robe very often. Sometimes, you know, I might have just got out of the bath and be wrapped in a towel. But, uh, you know, it's... uh, You know, the thing about television is, you know, there are cameras there and they're... (laughs) That uh, television is an odd medium because it's entirely artificial and yet it's also a very good phoniness detector. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, yes, I do go down to my... Fridge at night. I less now than I used to, simply because you're you're very young. So as you get older, you find if you eat too much late at night, you don't sleep. So annoying. But <laughs> um, but you know, without cameras, I I don't brush my hair or wear makeup. When there are cameras there, um, you know there are teams of people to make sure I am uh, looking better than I do naturally.
0: <laughs> 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 Was there a moment in the development of that show where you were like we need to have we, this needs to end every every episode of Nigella Bites?
1: Yeah, I think so. And the same now we've I've now decided it became almost everyone would just say go on about it such a lot and you know, as part of the deal, I always resisted TV. I mean, I used to do a book program mm-hmm. um on network TV in and I sometimes, when I was a journalist, would do, yeah, I don't know what you would call it, like ask the press, that sort of thing. But I was oh, sorry to click my fingers in front of the <laughs> microphone. And um, so I didn't really want, I didn't, you know, I was so slightly still coming to terms with the fact that I'd written a, a food book. So I said no to doing TV. But then I said, well, as long as I'm not scripted and I can do it at home at the time, and um, I'll do it. And I had certain ways I wanted it to be, feel like it was real. But, and I certainly don't want to do anything that isn't. But then now I just felt like well, it's become sort of, now it would be self conscious if I did it. So now I just let them, I let them use a blooper reel at the end. I don't want to see it. I mean, I don't watch my programmes, but because I'm incredibly clumsy, so I drop things non stop. I mean, the amount of graters that fall on my head as I'm taking them off, you know, from that rail that hangs there, or I'm putting cocoa into a pan and. And it's actually now in all over the stove, but not in the pan. So I just say, just put there, use those instead.
0: But I think that that's part of the success. I mean, that's how real people cook. You're making a cake once, I think, oh, and you just, like, take the bowl of flour, flour of and you just sugar whoosh sugar. it into the mm. in in the, to the bowl of easier. of wet 100 ingredients. 100 grams of
1: light muscovado sugar, 50 grams of the most wonderful brown and sort of earthy cocoa, two teaspoons of baking powder and a teaspoonful of bicarb. And it's just whoosh, in here, and then just mix this. Now, it makes a very liquid batter, this cake, and that's what keeps it so wonderful. And it
0: sort of flies everywhere, and you just keep going, and you whip it up, and it (laughs) looks amazing, and I think that's part of it. Well, I suppose it goes back to
1: the thing about being a home cook, although I am a particularly clumsy home cook, and it slightly worries me because people still want to think I'm a specialist and they want to ask me technical questions, and I feel like... I don't know I know why I make this but I and I you know my knife skills are terrible um But in a sense, that also means it's more helpful writing recipes for people who haven't gone to culinary school because I know to say when I write a recipe, oh, you know, look, you know, cook it until it thickens and there's a certain stage when it will seem to go incredibly runny and don't panic, it will thicken later. Whereas if I knew more, it wouldn't occur to me to panic in the first place.
0: If you were stuck on a desert island with one food for the rest of your life, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I would never, I would never. (laughs) Nigella's latest book, Simply Nigella, is out now. And I'd suggest flipping to her quick-pickled beats first to get a taste of some of her made-up words.
1: You know, wearing a pair of disposable vinyl gloves or this your hand will foreshow the moltenest seeds incarnadine, in. And that was my kind of hip-hop Macbeth. <laughs> and, you know, it's it should be shortly, in, in, it's for Lady Macbeth's speech when she's you know on the turn, if not worse. And my publishers were fine about that, but they said, what does faux show mean?
0: <laughs> so we had to
1: italicize it. That was the only bit of feedback I got. So
0: they had to italicize it. Yeah, they
1: fought for it to go. I fought for it to stay. <laughs> and uh, we italicized it because that was the only that was the only uh, question.
0: <laughs> Nigella Lawson, thank you so much for being here. Anytime. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Our producer is Tim Einenkel. And thanks also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at Food52, and you can email us at editors at 52com If you like the show, tell everyone you know and subscribe to us on iTunes. For Nigella Lawson, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.